0: Firstly, please excuse me, I have a bit of a cold if I start to cough. Please uh, forgive me for that. Well, if you think about it, we've been looking really from the start of the Church of Christ as the Apostles went out and spread that wonderful message. And we've been working our way through the centuries. And uh, I think the four weeks ago we, we came to roughly around about 8600. And I'm going to jump forward at the start tonight... ...to AD 1054. We just sang a moment or two about the church. We see her long divided by heresy and sect. Well, this was this was the first big split in the church. I'd already talked to you earlier about the number of different heresies that had taken place... ...and how that they'd had to have certain councils to uh, hammer out creeds... ...and to really get on top of the heresies that had crept into the church... But here, for the first time, there was a major split in the church itself, in the church proper. And in 1054, um, a formal split occurred when emissaries of Pope Leo IX, so he was a bishop of Rome. At this stage, they were calling themselves, or they were being called popes. And so the head of the Roman church sent uh, emissaries to Constantinople, to the Eastern church, where the patriarch there was called Michael uh, Surielus. Suriarius Suri Arius, and he uh, ignored these emissaries that they came. They wanted to discuss the primacy of Rome amongst other things. They wanted to discuss some theological things and he kept them sitting for about three months and ignoring them and eventually they decided they'd had enough and they excommunicated. That is they said you're put out of the church to this patriarch. He in turn then said well I'm going to excommunicate the Roman bishop, and he wrote a letter of excommunication for the Roman bishop, and that was the formal split that took place that led to the formation of what we now today would term the Western Church as the Roman Catholic Church, and the term Catholic just means universal, so the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Orthodox Church, Orthodox means sort of holding on to established beliefs, So they're the ones that say, look, we're the true church. And if you were to look up and see what they say, they'll tell you we're the true faithful church to what has been handed down through the centuries. But, you know, this only formalized in a, a rather strange and almost comical sort of way. Something had been taking place over a period of centuries. And I guess we have to go back a little bit to try and work out what led to this terrible split in the Church of Christ uh, into two major uh, church uh, parties, as it were, with different theological uh, issues and views and certain things. And we really need to go back almost to the fall of the Roman Empire to some degree. Remember that Rome had been ruled uh, and were the rulers of the, the whole of the I suppose the Mediterranean and greater European area right into the Middle East out as far as the borders of Persia at one time down into Egypt, across North Africa but the Roman Empire had become large and had been divided by emperors over the period of time into an east and west so there was a capital in Constantinople in the east and there was a capital in Rome but in Rome pressures were mounting from, especially from tribes from Germany you sort of get a big picture here. The Huns come from Mongolia and work their way across Asia, right across the steppes of Russia. And they come into Europe, and they're coming into the back of Germany. And the German tribes are there. They want to get out because the Huns are coming. And so they're squeezed out, and some of them cross the Rhine and cross the Danube, and they come into Roman territory, and there's no love lost at all. And eventually, though, fortunately, the, the Hun advance is stopped by a, a combination of some of these tribes and the Franks, uh, and they're stopped just over the, at the Rhine. And so Attila the Hun, he, well, he, he uh, then moves a wee bit south and he starts to, well, I could go on and take my tribes down into Rome. And as he comes close to Rome, the Bishop of Rome at that time, Leo I, goes out famously to meet him and pleads with them not to come in and to sack the city, but to leave it alone. And Attila does what he's asked. And Leo is seen as the saviour of Rome. And Attila basically turns his army round, doesn't go any further, and goes back and dies very shortly afterwards. But some of the tribes then have been pushed out by the Huns, the Ostrogoths, the, the, the East Goths they're called, they then come on into Rome. And as once again, Leo goes and he pleads with them not to destroy the Rome, not to destroy everything that exists, and particularly not to destroy the church. And they listen to him. For 12 days, the troops are allowed to pillage the whole place, but they're not allowed to destroy the Christian churches and Rome is taken over, and the Ostrogoths then rule most of Italy. So, what has happened is that the Rome of the West, the Empire in the West, has basically fallen apart. But the church stood up and becomes a sort of the stabilizing, the one stable element within that whole Western structure. But there's also more happening still in the greater world scene. Around 8650, so you'll find that the Islam, it rears its head, it spreads down into Arabia, right across North Africa, and it takes the opportunity in the confusion of things to attack and to conquer all around and even sweeps up into Europe through Spain and tries to get into Europe through Turkey but doesn't succeed. So things, as you can see, are a state of flux all round. The church is under great pressure in many areas, physically under Islam, to remain. Although, strangely enough, under Islam, the the church, by and large, the ordinary church people are left to worship and to get on with things. But their leaders are, are heavily persecuted. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then another thing, again, takes place. So we're moving forward a couple of hundred years here from when the Roman Empire in the West has fallen. And uh, around about AD 600, the Lombards, who are another tribe from Germany, they decide that they want to uh, move out of Germany and they attack Rome and the uh, Ostrogoths and they attack and conquer most of Italy. Some of the Eastern Empire also hangs on to a little bit of empire as well. So that's sort of uh, something of setting the political scene. But the big thing here was Rome, by and large, for all we think about it and for all the way it acted, was still a civilized nation. And in the East, that civilization still continued. But in the West, barbarism was the norm. The Ostrogoths and the other tribes, they actually hated the Romans so much that they they deliberately burned their books And they prevented and discouraged people from learning to read or to write because that would smack of education and culture that is Roman. So they they wanted to get rid of everything Roman. So the net result was that in the West and in all of that Western part of the empire, people basically were uneducated. And bear that in mind because that that is important. They... Start of what we would term the Dark Ages in Europe. But strange things still happen. The church still exists. And as you remember, the last time I told you, the church was still sending out missionaries. They went to England. There were missionaries from Ireland and from Scotland who then came down and went into Germany. I wanted just mention then some other we thing that has happened from a historical point of view that's important. And then we think about the spread of the churches it still was going on. So going forward from AD 600, I'd said that the Lombards had come down from Germany and they had taken over and started to rule Italy. And around about AD 750, there was a man who was... Uh, He was sort of second in command in the kingdom of France or the kingdom of the Franks as it was known that day. His name was Pepin. And he fancied being the king and getting rid of the king. And he and the bishop of Rome had a, a little bit of a narrative and a discussion. Which resulted in the bishop of Rome sending a man called Boniface, who we're going to mention again in a moment, to him. And to crown him as the king of the Franks. So this man, Pepin, gets crowned as king of Franks. Now, okay, it's interesting that. Why? Well, you see, the bishop of Rome had an ulterior motive. Basically, he had said to him, I'll get you crowned as king of the Franks. We'll get rid of the other king. And in return, what I want you to do is to come and invade Italy and invade the Lombards. And that's exactly what did happen. And the Lombards were put out, are controlled. And Rome, the church in Rome, as we're going to see shortly, it became important in its own right. If you look at that in in, in the picture on the screen behind you, you'll see a sort of red bit up the middle of Italy going up from Rome up to Venice in the north. Those areas became Roman church property, the papal states they became under the the property of Rome. And all of a sudden, instead of it just being a church, it was more than a church. It now had country to, to own, the church in the West. But Pepin had children. One of them was a man called Charlemagne. Charlemagne, you've probably heard about him. He was a great king. In AD 800, a great event took place. And this time... Charlemagne is crowned as emperor by the bishop of Rome in Rome. Now you might say, well, what's so important about that? What, why is that important? Well, do you know, if you think carefully what is being established here, the bishop of Rome is basically saying, as he had almost with Pepin, you are becoming king because I... The Bishop of Rome, under God, is authorizing your coronation. So the whole concept of the king being from God, rather just than a a king that had risen from people, now it becomes the king and divine uh, uh, appointment by divine appointment. The king becomes by divine appointment through the action of the Bishop of Rome, Gregory, at that time. And that is really important when you bear in mind the things, how they then begin to develop. Basically, the Bishop of Rome is saying that I am greater than any secular authority. The church is greater than any secular authority. And yes, we know it is. In one sense, church and state should never be mixed. But... The Bishop of Rome is making a, a big political ploy here and a big play. But Charlemagne is, makes a tremendous empire, big empire. And as part of that, he, he actually uh, stops the spread of Islam into Europe. And Charlemagne's empire becomes what is known as the Holy Roman Empire. It was massive. It spread right across France right through Austria, Germany, right away across to, into parts of what we would call Czechoslovakia. It's that big green area that you see there. And this becomes the foundation for the Holy Roman Empire. And notice in the middle, in Italy, if you know your geography, in Italy, you'll see still right in the middle, there's a wee yellow bit there called the Papal States. Haha. So here's the church. It owns a country. The Papal States. So basically you can see historically the church in the West has had to, first of all, stand on its own two feet, has been a stabilising influence, but it has also grown in its own importance. While the church in the East remains the same as it had been down through the centuries and hadn't had any really major change. But you know, the gospel light still continued to shine through all the upheaval and all the things that were happening in Europe, it was still the gospel message was one that the churches wanted to get out. And the church in Rome wanted to get missionaries out there. And the church in the east, not so much, but the church in the east also had some missionaries as well that they wanted to get there. So the church struggled really to go east because of Islam. It struggled to go south because of Islam. So now the missionary emphasis went north, basically north. It even went as far as Greenland and Iceland, but it also particularly went into Scandinavia and into Germany. And there was a a man called Methodius who took the gospel to the Slav people. That's in Bulgaria and uh, southern Russia. But then I want to go back and mention this man called Boniface that I I mentioned earlier. So we're, we're around about A.D. 800 here. And Boniface was a, a man of great missionary zeal. He was an Englishman, but he was so fired up that he wanted to tell people about Jesus, and he wanted to make them Christians. He also was a, a really staunch supporter of the church and the church at Rome. And he was commissioned, as it were, to go and to take the gospel into Germany. And into Germany, there were still those pagan tribes those people who were still wanted to kill you basically rather than be Christianized as it were. And there's a famous incident where Boniface is seen there uh, uh, and depicted cutting down a pagan tree that was dedicated to Thor. And all the pagan tribes, they were standing around and they were waiting for this. It was a bit like Elijah in Mount Carmel. Basically they were waiting to see what was going to happen. Was the god of Boniface this Christian god going to Was he going to win out? Or was Thor going to come down with his hammer and strike Boniface dead? And of course, what happened? Christianity won out. The tree got chopped down. No reprisal from Thor. Gods of our imagination can't do anything, but our God is the great God. And the people... Boniface is said to have converted thousands of people through his ministry in Germany. Sadly, though... He was killed on the eve, just before he was about to baptize a group of converts uh, who had, had been uh, taught about the word of God and wanted to get him, get baptized. He was killed on that night by some of those pagan people that he was trying to reach. They crept in. He was in a tent alone with a few of his uh, with a few followers, basically, and not many people about, And he was killed. But you know, Boniface, it's not. It wasn't all men. It wasn't all men. I can't get my tongue around a list of these ladies here. But in the history of the uh, German church, Bering Gold writes this, From the convents of England, as from a hive issued likewise a swarm of widows and virgins, the mothers, sisters, and kinswomen of the missionaries, eager to share in their labors and perils. And then he goes on to talk about Lioba and how she... Uh, was known as being something who was not only uh, really beautiful but fascinating in her speech but learned in the holy scriptures and the creeds and then he talks about the other ones Uh, Tunenhild and her daughter Tunadrat, Thessia and Walpurgus and these women have their names down in history going out and spreading the gospel message into these pagan tribes in Germany daunting I suspect so it's not all about men and it's the same today in missionary work isn't it it's not all about men in fact more often than not it's sometimes it's the women that are out there reaching across the world into uh, various parts and to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and like we, we, we're well influenced here with UFM and the missionaries and, we, and David would agree there's a high percentage of women amongst them so we're all involved in the message of spreading the gospel in the east meanwhile what was happening the Nestorian church had moved in centre in Persia it reached right across the Silk Road it got out to China and there were churches along that Silk Road for hundreds of years sadly that's they've all been basically wiped out now meanwhile in Egypt the Coptic church it went southward down the Nile Valley and down the coastal regions to the the towns that had been uh, Romanised and reached the gospel message down there as well so those the gospel message was still being spread even under the spread of Islam, even under the influence of the dark ages and the paganism. And, and, and the next slide shows a picture really of how Islam has spread right across. It's not easy to see, but the uh, diagonal lines show the Islamic areas and some of the darker colored lines show the Christian areas. And yet some, so some of those Christian areas are overrun by Islamists, but at the same time, as I said, the church was by and large, the ordinary people were tolerated to let get on with their own religion. But you know, while it's true to say that the church was reaching people for Christ, sadly, the church had become the norm in the empire. And people had come into the church and were bringing in certain practices and and thought processes and elements and, and some influences crept into the church that caused and were to be part of this division that was about to take place. Certain practices don't sit well with where we look at scripture today and look back on them. First of all, the pagan priests in Rome had a hierarchy of priesthood. And gradually that crept into the church, where instead of there just being an elder or elders in the church, there became one leader who, as I said, then got termed bishop. But then there became the important bishop who was an archbishop or a metropolitan bishop who ruled over a a group of churches in various towns and so on. And so there gradually there became this ranking system Within the priesthood. And even one of those bishops, the bishop of Carthage, a man called Cyprian, he actually also put out the idea that the bishops in the churches, well, they were elected by God and appointed by God, and that they were God's representative, appointed by him and not the people. And that he uh, then taught that priests, that these bishops were priests rather than what we believe and what scripture teaches the priesthood of all believers which had been what had been the accepted norm up to that point in time these people had been accepted everybody were all priests together serving the Lord and now here this is it's crept in that this priestly order had happened and he also brought in the idea of the apostolic succession whereby that the the bishops were and particularly the bishops in the church in the Roman church in the center of Rome itself they were the true people who succeeded the apostles and were passing on the true word of God and only they uh, could do that. As well as that, and I'm not going to talk about it tonight um, but because I think at we'll, another occasion we'll probably come back to look at the, the rise of the, the papacy and the papal authority, but there was also uh, documents that have turned out to be fraudulent but in the middle of an era, an era when people basically had no education and can't really read and write those documents were accepted for about 800 years as genuine. And they were, they were written around about uh, the 800s, the 9th century, the latter part of it. And they were purported to show that their, the earliest bishop in Rome, Clement, right through to the present bishop in Rome in 890, they all everybody sort of looked to them to see what the decision was to be made when it came to interpreting Scripture. And, of course, but they're, they're fraudulent documents. But they still had a major impact in the church as it uh, developed. And then this idea of confession and penance, it changed as well. If you remember, under the, I, I said that under the times of the persecution, there was a, a, a lot of Christians who basically, well, they, they either bought their way out of being thrown to the lions or they sacrificed to the emperor, and then they wanted to repent afterwards because they were truly sorry that they'd uh, renounced their faith. And when they tried to get back into the church, there were some who wouldn't have them back at all. But most said, well, you've got to really show your penance. You've got to really show, not just confess the fact that you sinned, but you've got to show it to everybody. And so publicly they would have had to perhaps kneel outside the church every week, every uh, every Sunday morning, They'd kneel outside the church for maybe up to a year before they were readmitted into the church. So this very public penance, as it were, and public confession of sin, it gradually changed to a private one, where it was to the priest that you went. And that, as we know, is wrong. And again, maybe at another time, as well as that, There were some awful things that were happening in the church when we think about them today. The worship of relics and the worship of images. heres I'll write at something that was said to be happening by a man called Vigilantius. There are honors paid to rotten bones and dust of the saints and martyrs by adoring them kissing them, wrapping them up in silk and vessels of gold, putting them in the churches and lighting wax candles before them. After the manner of heathens, these are the ensigns of idolatry. The sepulchers of martyrs ought not to be worshipped, nor their fasts and vigils to be observed. And signs and wonders said to be wrought by relics in their sepulchers serve to no good or purpose of the end of religion. You know, once the Western world was full of relics, bones, skin, fingernails, even heads of saints were preserved, bought and sold. Do you know, you can actually go to a church in Rome and you can go and see the finger, so they say, the finger that Doubting Thomas put into the side of the Lord. That's the sort of thing it's claimed. At one stage, they basically had to say, stop robbing the graves in Egypt. Because they were being dug up in that same church, there are um, three pieces of the true cross as well, and yet one of the Christian historians worked it out says there 's been enough pieces of the true cross to build five cathedrals so but this crept into the church. What about images well there was, there's was a reality here because churches were painted quite early. In 431, a, a man called Polinius, who was bishop uh, of uh, a church, basically got the church painted with scenes of the Old Testament because his people couldn't read and write. And they basically said, I, I want people to be able to understand what I'm talking about here. And then a, a couple of hundred years later, again, during uh, Gregory, that man that was around about the, that um, was responsible for so much, of the good in a way that the Roman church could do. He basically, there was a bishop wrote to him and complaining about this idea of painting the churches and picnics. And so he says, look, he wrote to Gregory, he says, I've cleared the church out of it, got the paintings taken down, got all these images thrown out and got rid of them all. And he got a letter back saying, well, yes, you're right. People shouldn't be worshipping them. And you've got to stop it. But? There's a lot of people were benefiting because they could see pictures and they could understand better. So that is a major consequence because this was one of the central differences between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. In 750 they had a, a council at Nicaea, and up to this point in time, they had managed, the church had managed to say, No to images and icons in church. We don't want them. The Western Church continued to push and push and push and push, and eventually, in that council, and I think it was, uh, I think it was seven fifty-seven. But eventually, in that council, they agreed that you could have images of Christ and of the cross, and that people could worship them. And here, the church began. There's a major split already. The church in the East didn't want it. The church in the West, the West did. But there was worse to follow. I'm going to mention one other thing, and that is a thing called, a sin called simony. Now, simony is named after Simon, but it's named after a different Simon. I'll read this bit from Acts. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, that is Peter and Paul, or Peter and John, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, and I put him back, the magician, because that's what he was, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could tain the gift of God with money." Well, the sin of simony is still in canon law today, existing as one that is punishable and requires penance if you get involved in it. And basically what had happened is that um, people were taking the opportunity to seek spiritual reward for basically money. But it wasn't just, so it was the idea of, of buying or selling for something, for a temporal price, things that are spiritual or annexed onto spiritual. And, you know, when Pepin came down and invaded and conquered the Lombards to allow the Bishop of Rome, the country the pap- that became the Papal States, effectively, he, the, the Bishop of Rome, had bought this for himself, because he was doing that, but there was more than that as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of selling of ecclesiastical favor. Uh, there was an occasion where there was a bishop in the island of Sardinia, and he was written to. I came. I was I was just reading through some of the, the, the letters that were written from the different bishops, and uh, a letter written by Gregory. Uh, around about AD 600 wrote to this. And he basically was, he was telling the bishop off. And he was saying, look, I've had a complaint from your church that you've charged this woman who's been a lifelong member of the church. You've charged her daughter or you're charging her daughter money to bury her. So for some in the church, they were seeing the opportunity to line their own pocket, to get rich quick, to do well out of serving God by selling things um, it became a norm, the practice very much in the Western world. And in, in AD 963, one pope sold his papacy for a thousand pieces of silver to another man and it ended up being at the same time there were three popes all at the same time. But that's the sort of thing that was going on. It was rife. People were making money out of things that they shouldn't have. And so all these things basically had led, the the Western church, yes, it still was sending missionaries out, but boy, there were some great errors coming into it, things that were totally wrong, that weren't from Scripture, and this particular sin was dreadful in its entirety. And that was the scene that existed then as we come back to 1054, and we think of the, 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 the the. the differences between the church in the Eastern Empire and the church in Europe. And the, the big ones are these. I know there's a whole list of differences up there, but the big ones are these. The claim of the Bishop of Rome to have supremacy in all ecclesiastical matters. That was one. Secondly, there was a, a on a, a religious point of view, the two branches disagreed totally over the issue with regards to the Holy Spirit. The church in Rome uh, wanted the wording of that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son into the Creed. And the Eastern Church says, no, the Holy Spirit and the Son proceed from the Father. There's a subtle difference, but they fall out over it. They really fall out big style over this. And then the I've already mentioned this idea of using icons and images in worship. The Western church wanted it. The Eastern church, holding fast to the solid, to the foundation of scripture, was taking the viewpoint that these images, these icons, were idolatry in the extreme. Worshipping images, worshipping relics. Then there are smaller things, like the date for celebrating Easter. You might think that doesn't seem particularly important, but there was a whole synod in Whitby in England if you, I wondered, did anybody see the program a few weeks ago? Was talking about the Easter in Britain. There was a synod in in England where the Celtic Church and the Church who had been come from the south from the Roman Church had a big meeting to decide what the date of Easter was going to be for Britain, and the Roman Church date won out at that occasion. And then there were cultural differences, of course, because there was the Eastern philosophy, and that. Uh, which was more philosophical than the practical, hard-nosed Western philosophy, and then again back to the leader of the church in the East. The emperor was still seen as the head of the church, and the bishops uh, were while they were important, they were responsible to the emperor. Whereas in the West, they basically the emperor or the the bishop had exalted himself above, above all kings, but really then uh, there were some similarities. They still wanted to reach people with the gospel. They still wanted to get that message out there. And they still had certain agreements. But, you know, what's really the lesson for us in all of this, I suppose? Uh, in, a, in a way, it's not just a history lesson, is it? It's, it's about still wanting to tell people about Jesus. But it's also about keeping our own house in order and making sure that We don't fall into any error. And you know, when you'll go through, and if we go right, bring history right up to date, there are still today developments where people fall into error from God's word, and they they fall away from the fundamental truths that are taught in scripture, and they bring in man-made practices, or they bring in new uh, prophetic ideas such as um, Muhammad had, that he's had a new revelation. But the big thing to me was this idea, and it horrified me to see how widespread it was, this idea that people serving God should be doing it to get rich. Why do we become Christians? We don't become Christians to get rich. We don't become Christians to have good health and good wealth. We become Christians because we're sinners. And Christ died for us. And we see the need in our lives for Christ to forgive us our sins and humbly and repentantly we come to him. And we come and we acknowledge him as Lord and King to rule over us. And we gladly serve him. Not for any great personal gain at all. And then there's the obedience to God's word. Stay faithful to God's word. Difficult times I appreciate for the church because of the lack of education. And wonderful things that the church did. Charlemagne insisted that the monasteries in his kingdom had schools associated with them. And many of those then went on to become universities and great seats of learning. And it was immense the work that the church did, not just in reaching the gospel. In 500 years from the fall of Rome, the whole of basically Europe had been reached for the gospel of Christ. And the people were being educated at the same time, by and large because of the work of the church. So there were great things and good things going on, but holding fast to God's word. So those are the things we still need to reach people for Christ, men and women involved. We still need to look that we don't let error creep in. And we need to look at our own lives and see, well, why are we serving Christ? Is it for our personal gain? It should not be. We have not to lay up treasures on earth. But treasures in heaven. Amen. Amen. We're going to.